You're listening to the Ottoman History Podcast. To find out more about today's topic or check out some of our other episodes, along with maps, images, documents, and other materials related to the history of the Ottoman Empire and the modern Middle East, visit us on the web at ottomanhistorypodcast.com. Welcome to another episode of the Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Nir Shafir, and today we're speaking with Nuket Varluk. Nuket is an Associate Professor of History at Rutgers, Newark. Welcome, uh, Nuket. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to have you. Today we're going to be speaking about plague in the Ottoman Empire. Uh, Nuket has recently published a very uh, important and very solid book about plague and empire in the early modern Mediterranean world, The Ottoman Experience. Uh, which covers kind of the 15th and 16th centuries. And so today we're going to be speaking about the Ottoman experience of plague, uh, but more importantly, the connection between empire, uh, circulation, and disease. And even we'll be speaking about the role of things like genetics in the study of history and how historians can work with and incorporate, uh, work with geneticists, with biologists, and incorporate this type of evidence and data into their own work uh, and what that requires. So, Nuket, in the introduction, you have this interesting statement that you start off with right away, that you couldn't have written this book 10 years beforehand. You know, why is that? Because most people, you know, 10 years before is you basically were just starting your dissertation research. And so for most people, their research doesn't kind of substantially change over that period. That can, So can you explain what you meant by this? I mean, what, 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 what did change? Uh, thank you for asking me this question, because this allows me, this will allow me to talk about you know, how this story developed and evolved and, and, and how I came to learn about um, how to write about plague during this time. Mm-hmm. And I think when I said that this book could not have been written 10 years ago, it was just not a cliche. I think I really believe that it is true. At least uh, it could not have been written in the same way that mm-hmm. it was possible to write it now. And the main reason is is because of the larger developments in the field. Not, I'm not only referring to only to um, Ottoman history, mm-hmm. but I'm referring mainly, mainly to the changes and developments that have been taking place over the last 10 to 15 years in the fields of ancient DNA research hmm. in genetics. And mainly, I'm referring to um, the group of studies or the, the wave of studies that have been evolving since the very late 1990s, mm-hmm. um, and taking a very definitive course around 2010, 2011. So let me just give you my sense of what I learned as a high schooler or, so, or you know, in middle school about the plague, which was uh, that there was, that is basically spread from rodents to humans. There might have been one or two kind of mouses outbreaks. There might have been a, a, a different form of black death that was spread from person to person in the early medieval things. So I, ha- I always have these kind of vague uh, notions, which I think is what you're referring to was the older version of what we understood as plague, right? So what what changed? Okay, uh, I think I need to make two different points. One of them is that, of course, the classic, I will say, the classic story that we all know or read in textbooks about like bubonic plague, right. and that's the kind of convention um, since most definitively in the second part of the 20th century, um, bubonic plague, rats and fleas, that's the older story that we we knew about. Mm -hmm. And uh, later on, there was um, 
a new understanding, uh, a more critical understanding of re-examining uh, the assumptions about retrospective diagnosis, hmm. um, how we diagnose disease on the basis of historical sources alone. And uh, there was a more critical uh, perspective on these accounts and historians started becoming, started questioning this, uh, mainly you know, that we cannot have this retrospective diagnosis and this could not have been plagued, this could have been another disease. Mm -hmm. And there were um, historians who suggested that this was another disease. And so uh, we had this um, trend mm -hmm. um, in the field. But one uh, problem with this is that everyone became so skeptical Right. that it was not the plague, that it could have been another disease, then people started feeling scared mm -hmm. to even suggest that it could have been plague. So it was definitely an, um, an era in historical writing that historians started intimidating, started feeling intimidated by um, asserting that this could have been plague. So there is, when you look at it, like in the entire 2000s, I think, is kind of dominated by the sphere of reticence that historians are not making these claims. But at the same time, as historians were kind of shying away from making suggestions mm -hmm. about, you know, because of the trap of, of retrospective diagnosis, geneticists were at this time started developing these new techniques and these new understandings by basically using human... Um, um, skeletal remains and mostly using dental pulp to look for evidence of ancient DNA of Yersinia pestis, the pathogen that causes the plague as we know today. So before that, so just to summarize what you were saying is that before this, they were, they basically people just decided that these people were dying, but it's not clear from what it could have been from a variety of diseases, but we don't want to assign it to a plague and to the, the vector of that, which is the bacteria Yersinia pestis. <laughs> Yersinia pestis, right? Uh, and so what they're doing is they're using dental pulp and they're taking, looking at bacterial DNA left within human remains, right? Mm -hmm. okay. um, the only way, as far as we know now, the only way you can identify whether a person in the past died of plague or not is by testing dental pulp and uh, by developing the um, ancient DNA pieces mm. and to if they would, whether they would test positively for Yersinia pestis or not. That would be a definitive um, evidence about whether a person in the past died of plague or not, right? That is something that can be done now. Um, and these studies developed over the last 10, 15 hmm. years ago as historians were shying away from making these claims about right. past plagues. So it was interesting how these played out. And in a way, I think we were almost pushed to the margins of our own field I by see. hesitating of not making those claims as geneticists were trying to take the lead in telling us, well, actually, there is plague here and this is the way we can show it. Mm -hmm. What did they find out that all, I mean, what is the story of plague now according to geneticists? What is the story? First of all, I need to mention that um, about five, six years ago, a revolutionary uh, attempt was made in the field of genetics mm -hmm. in terms of plague research. And that is that the, um, uh, the material, ancient DNA material brought 
from East Smith Smithfield um, excavations, a burial uh, ground from 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 England that we can date to the time of the Black Death, and we know that the human remains uh, buried there were from the Black Death. So there's definitive evidence mm-hmm. that those individuals died from the plague, and uh, it was it was possible for the first time to sequence the entire genome of Yersinia pestis entirely from these ancient DNA. Mm. So this was a revolutionary moment in the understanding of genetics evidence, and it kind of changed our understanding of the history of of the bacterium entirely. So um, in this sense, I think we are now in... um, we're looking at a new type of new new types of questions and mm-hmm. and new ways of understanding the history plague that we were never able to before. Okay, so we've talked about this kind of this new way these new ways of identifying the plague bacteria w- within kind of uh, historical DNA. Now, how has this changed uh, our current story of the plague? What kind of new research questions has it opened up, and how do we apply those? To, how have you applied them to the Ottoman Empire? Gen- the genetic story is opening up new possibilities for historical inquiry, and and this is we. It is possible to tell a global story now mm. because we were not able to ask these questions before, and we were not able to integrate these little pieces before, and now we can. You know, since we have a general understanding of the narrative of the Black Death, mm-hmm. now we can integrate these uh, the pieces of information on a global scale on the map. And when I say global scale, it's really on more on a hemispheric level of the old world. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the Ottoman Empire and the Ottoman story, the Ottoman experience is really, in a way, unique in in what it can tell us about the early history of plague and later on its persistence. And by early history, you mean what period? By early history, I'm basically referring to the first century of the Black Death from 1347, say, I usually want to time it around the time of um, uh, the conquest of Constantinople, mm-hmm. like mid-15th century. That's kind of, I see it as kind of the first century of the plague of the second um, pandemic. And during this time period, the circulation of the disease in and out of Ottoman lands is moving uh, according to a certain predictable epidemiological patterns. Mm-hmm. But after the, consta- uh, the conquest of Constantinople and after human circulation and trade and all the other like expansion of the empire and other um, mobilities expanded, we see different patterns of circulation mm. and reemergence of disease. And this was actually something that surprised me when I was doing my research. Looking at the recurrences of the disease, you can almost see a more or less predictable pattern of recurrence of the disease of every human generation or so. Every 10 to 15 years, you have another wave of plague. And this is not only for the Ottomans. This is the same in Egypt, in Syria, in uh, Western Europe, mm-hmm. more or less. So starting in 1350, what you have is essentially kind of wave, 30-year waves of plague. Maybe less. Maybe less, okay. Yes, Uh, and it is the natural behavior of the disease because Mm -hmm. this disease is, the biological mechanism of this disease is in such a way that it it comes to a new place. And if it finds a new environment that can sustain it Mm -hmm. in the wild rodent population, then it will recur again 
affect human societies and retreat. So it has almost like a cyclical mm -hmm. uh, pattern of recurrences and um, disappearance. Uh, but when I look at the Ottoman experience, this kind of natural rhythm of the disease was developing and evolving more or less mm -hmm. along the same lines for a century. But so, after the conquest of Constantinople, I saw there were important changes. Hmm. And so I started asking about what, why mm -hmm. we see this change. So right before we jump into that, I just want to ask, uh, I think listeners might be familiar with something called like the Justinian plague, kind of these earlier plague episodes. Um, I presume from the genetic studies that we can tell that these are essentially the same disease, right? Yes. And why did the Justinian plague die out? Why was it not, con was it always present before 1350? That's a great question. We don't have mm -hmm. the answer for this question yet, but what we know is for a fact that we know that it is the same disease. Mm -hmm. And uh, we also know about the biological relationship between the two different waves of the, but I cannot answer the question of why it disappeared. Mm -hmm. In fact, the question is important to ask, why did it disappear the first time around right. in the Justinianic plague, as we call the first pandemic, because it continued for a couple of centuries after, after that time? And was it for the same reasons that it disappeared the second time around? Mm -hmm. In fact, it never disappears. The second um, time around? Yeah. Or, yeah, okay. So it, it, it probably leaves some residues in, in the natural environment, if it has the right circumstances to arise, it comes back again. I see. So what you're saying is that uh, with the Black Death in 1350, what we have is uh, kind of a constantly recurring plague ecology that's uh, around the Mediterranean. And that so we imagine the Black Death to end kind of somewhere in the 15th, 16th, even 17th century. But you're, I think in your research, you're kind of pushing that narrative all the way into the present day or the 20th century, right? We still don't know when to end right. the second pandemic. Um, people might give you different uh, answers to this question depending on where you're looking from. Because the narrative until now has been largely Eurocentric, mm -hmm. um, historians usually date the, the Plague of London, 1665, or the Plague of Marseille, 1720s, as the end of the second pandemic. Right. But when we look at the Ottoman Empire, we can see or Eastern Mediterranean in general, we can see the continuation of the same wave of plague mm -hmm. until the 19th century. I see. So integrating the Ottoman experience challenges our traditional periodization of the disease. Yes, absolutely. So now that we've kind of just explored that kind of general periodization, I want to go back to this question of the conquest of Istanbul. What, what changes, you know, after 1450, you know, you were talking about the effect of empire and these new connections on the disease. Could you explain that a bit further? The way natural resources were used and the way people and non-human, humans and non-humans moved in this uh, environment mm -hmm. must have changed dramatically in such a way that disease patterns have changed. Mm. So it's not 10 years anymore. Mm. It is reducing, it is reduced, um, it, it, it is decreasing over the time, especially after the mid 15th century into the mid, uh, into the 16th century, we see that the disease is recurring constantly, almost like a seasonal event in mm. and out every year, especially in large urban centers like Istanbul, of course, a very large population, but also in other cities in Cairo, in Aleppo, in uh, Salonika, in these urban centers, we see plague recurring over and over again, a sustained presence. Mm -hmm. 
Well, that sounds fast. I mean, it sounds in a sense terrifying because you know one wants to live with plague year round. But how 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 is it that now plague is transmitted on this yearly basis constantly in these urban centers? What what were the vec the vectors the uh, the patterns of circulation that allowed this disease to kind of take hold in uh, Ottoman urban centers? The urban story, I think, needs to be separated from the background. Okay. So let's start rural with story. So the rural when story. we look at the urban story, there must be a certain number of rodents, basically mm-hmm. rats, living close to human populations in cities that were able to sustain this, this disease year around. Mm-hmm. And of course, you need a healthy number of fleas to transmit the disease from the rats to the humans. If you have such a large number of rodents within a city, living close to the humans, you don't need to reintroduce the infection. Mm. So they preserve the infection in their natural habitat. So um, we always think that plague comes from another place. No, plague is there. Mm. So it's just dwelling amongst the rats. Okay, so how does it get from the rats to the humans and between the humans? Okay, how does it get from rats to humans? By fleas. Mm -hmm. Um, Then we get, of course, to... Things like rodent population, increase and decreases mm-hmm. in rodent population. Like humans, there are some patterns because they also get affected by the disease. And humans will get the infection after the rodent die off mm. because the fleas that normally depend on the rats as hosts will be searching for new hosts. I so see. when you look at the decline and increased patterns of populations among the rodents and the human epidemics, they are similar, but the human epidemic always comes later mm-hmm. than the um, rat episodic. Mm, interesting. And so I think with this research, you know, you really... Uh, this might be a, a common point, but you know you're integrating animals as kind of actors and as agents into Ottoman history, into the history of uh, of these cities and so forth. So, correct me if I'm wrong, but I had also heard, you know, at different times that plague can also be spread uh, human to human, right? That only happens, as far as we know, that at least scientifically proven mm-hmm. um, in the pneumonic type of mm. plague, which is when the infection gets into the lungs and it is transmitted via um, air droplets in the air. So that's a human-to-human uh, transmission. But it is relatively uh, rare. rare. Mm-hmm. Uh, it happens, but um, I think in Ottoman sources, I came across some instances in which it was mentioned that it was the pneumonic type, but plague is default the bubonic type. Mm -hmm. The pneumonic is like a secondary infection that might develop or not. So on that note, you know, we talked kind of just generally about the transmission networks here, uh, the transmission vectors of plague. Uh, But how do we get from, you know, these rats or these rodents living in kind of rural areas to Two cities. Like, I mean, how do, what is the, I guess, the rural story of the plague here? Thank you for this question, because the urban story is something that we can put together on the basis of our historical sources that tend to tell us the human story, mm-hmm. right? But there is the, also the invisible background story that we really don't know much about or don't find out much about in the historical sources, because it is beyond the scope of historical agents or humans. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's the story in which the spillover events happens, in which um, wild rodents living in 
um, faraway places from the human populations get to transmit the disease to human populations. And then from these centers, with uh, human communi communication and mm -hmm. with the movement of uh, rodents, we see the transmission of the disease to larger urban centers. Mm. One thing we can say, I think, the larger the human population is, uh, the, uh, the higher the chances of the infection being introduced to the city. So it mm. all, the cities, and especially large cities like capital cities, work almost like magnets attracting the mm -hmm. um, infection. So in that sense, I think we can certainly say that Istanbul becomes the capital of plague. Mm. It seems to me like, you know, you basically just have lots of migration of both humans and animals and goods and all sorts of things coming into the capital. I mean, how do we know this? How do we know that the capital become is the center? Uh, I mean, you're, we're speaking about sources. Often, you know, because it's the capital, there's just more written about it. Mm -hmm. You know, for instance, I, I was recently listening to an art or reading an article by uh, a historical geographer Ian Gregory, and he was looking at uh, incidents of cholera in the written sources in uh, 19th century London. And while London was spoken much more often about cholera was mentioned much more often in relation to London, uh, it turned out that this was kind of an effect of just people writing a lot about London and that cholera was actually uh, even worse in the other, you know, the Northern cities, parts of, England that were never kind of mentioned. Mm -hmm. So how do we kind of deal with this question of sources? What sources can we use to find out I about mean, the it's, plague? You know, of course, legitimate to ask this question, mm -hmm. and it's something that we should be aware of, and it's always going to be there, right? Yeah. Uh, but it is still possible, I think, to work around the sources that we have in understanding of, for example, what are the differences in terms of the cyclical pattern of mm. the disease? For example, in Istanbul, there is a certain time the disease, like there are a certain time of the year that I would see like first cases of plague appearing, uh, probably maybe like April to May, right? And then dying off mm. in say October uh, or November, if it's really a bad one. But if I see an outbreak of plague starting in an off time outside of this cyclical pattern, then I can understand that it's introduced from outside. Mm. So there are ways of using the data in a more careful way to understand right. so you know, the patterns of infection, mm -hmm. if it's coming from outside and whatnot. But ultimately what we need is bioarchaeological medical material and uh, genetics evidence to establish you know what we can see in the historical sources to match them with scientific evidence that will be uh you mentioned kind of these important uh dna analyses done from uh graveyards of plague victims in england were we able to collect that for you know anatolia or the balkans or other egypt and think are those available to researchers to historians uh today I wish, <laughs> but uh, I'm working on, uh, I'm actually collaborating with a geneticist right mm -hmm. now, and we are asking similar questions, and we're trying to find some samples, which actually makes me realize this is not as easy as it seems, uh -huh. because it is not very easy to get human remains right. uh, shipped internationally, <laughs> lots of protocols and legal limitations. And also this makes made me understood, made me realize the the different dynamics of the relationship between bioarchaeologists and geneticists doing this work. Mm. Um, because this high-tech genetics ADNA research mm -hmm. is being done in very developed countries. Right. And the evidence that we're looking at, want to get, really come from 
third world countries, mm-hmm. right? So uh, in terms of funding of research and the way researchers are um, paid, there right. is an incredible difference between yeah. the two. So it's not just a question of uh, collection of scientific data and analyzing it, but there's also kind of a, a social... Economic and political background. Ba- yeah, to barriers to this kind of research that uh, we as historians or as bioarchaeologists have to overcome. Yeah, and also uh, when you look at the existing bioarchaeological evidence today, mm-hmm. most of it is from excavations in Europe. Mm. So I think we really need to look for evidence coming from different places right. outside of Europe to be able to expand the narrative beyond Europe, right. which is, I believe, very important. Yes, it sounds like it. I mean, especially with your reperiodization of the plague and this uh, renewed emphasis on kind of uh, a capital effect in the history of the disease and so forth. So we'll be right back. We're going to take a quick musical break and continue our discussion about plague in the Ottoman Empire and how to work with bioarchaeologists and geneticists. back. I'm Nir Shafir. I'm speaking with Nuket Vardik about plague in the Ottoman Empire. And before the break, Nuket, you mentioned that uh, plague, in a sense, transformed uh, over the course of the 16th century from something that occurred every 15 years, every generation, to something that was almost a yearly occurrence in many urban centers. That was surprising to me. And I was wondering, you know, how can we, can we get at the social experience of that? How did it feel? How did people deal with plague being around all the time? having a plague season are we looking at massive epidemics that we you know that we imagine in medieval europe or is this a different social experience of disease first of all it must have been terrible to live with <laughs> right. this disease when yeah. you don't have a cure and you will basically try anything mm-hmm. that you believe that worked, right? Uh, And you get the sense actually from the contemporary writings from the plague treatises people tried all sorts of things. What we can, I think, safely assume is that the people who live with this disease had a basic understanding of this disease, Mm. how the epidemic developed, when mortality increased, when it decreased. So a very kind of general understanding of the disease itself, the epidemic, and also the symptoms of the disease. Uh, When I look at the medical texts and and the more detailed discussions of disease in the text, you can see that physicians were writing about 
the unpredictability of the disease and the symptoms, for example, and how the bubos developed, if the bubos were a certain color, if they separated or not, mm-hmm. um, all sorts of signs so and symptoms. The, they're the swellings of the lymph nodes. They are the okay. swe- swellings of the lymph nodes, um, armpits, necks, and the groin area. Mm-hmm. And I think people had a basic understanding, even laymen, even the non-medical um, people had a certain understanding mm-hmm. of the disease and whether a certain individual would recover or would die, the symptoms. So there is a working knowledge at the popular level. Uh, so we're looking, you know, you mentioned medical treatises. Does the disease appear in other uh, places, you know, court records? chronicles, things like that? Yes. Um, plague appears in all sorts of places. Uh-huh. In fact, in my experience, it was out of desperation. <laughs> and I was looking, trying to look for information for plague to find evidence of plague in Ottoman sources everywhere. Basically, mm-hmm. anything I could find in historical chronicles, in uh, court records, in archival documents, in travelers' accounts, in medical and legal treatises, uh, you name them. So I looked at different types of sources and I I think it was something that was very helpful for me in trying to put together the story by using different genres of sources. Mm. Because if you can find one type of information in one source that you cannot find in a different genre, that helps you develop uh, to put together a a larger picture. It seems like you're combining, uh, you know, both these written sources and uh, to the degree possible, uh, this genetic or bioarchaeological evidence. Can you tell us more about, you know, what is it like? You're one of the few scholars to work with geneticists. Often, you know, historians might be skeptical of such a collaboration. Uh, you know, what's been your experience working with uh, these people? Uh, it's all new. And um, I feel like I don't really have a model to follow. So it's it's quite experimental in that sense. So mm-hmm. I really don't know what I'm doing, but I'm trying. <laughs> so um, it is tricky. Because that field works in a different dynamic, different pace that we're accustomed to. But I think we have a lot to learn Mm -hmm. from them. Uh, First of all, they do have a lot of collaborative work, which is something that I feel like we need to develop more to learn to, for example, to publish multi-authored works. Mm -hmm. This is something that is not conventional in our field. But given that not any given person can be an expert in all sorts of languages or all sorts of uh, material, then you need teamwork. Mm -hmm. And I think that's one thing to learn from. What I found uh, difficult or challenging about their research is that it is done very fast. Mm. Um, And that can lead to more mistakes. Um, And so when you look at the pace that we develop and the pace that they do, there is an extreme difference between that. Can you give us, uh, I don't know if this is possible, but maybe you could give us just an example. So your book, you didn't you didn't work with geneticists uh, in the course of your book research, right? I did not. But in your current research, you're working with them. Is there any examples of kind of the, the research questions you're pursuing at the moment? Yes. Uh, for example, now I am part of a larger team mm-hmm. of research and we are collecting material human skeletal material from across the Mediterranean basin to get a sense about where the plague reservoirs were located Mm. and when did they develop, when did they shrink and the kind of ecological changes that might have triggered it to put together a larger 
story. So um, across the Mediterranean basin, I can say, and recently, um, I think some um, some of our Russian colleagues have been contributing mm. to our understanding and expanding the focus to north of the Black Sea. So uh, for those of for those listeners that might be interested in doing this work, you know, often I find it somewhat difficult to read these scientific articles to kind of break into this new territory. Uh, how did you go about doing it? It is difficult. I mean, it was new at first. I can honestly say that I spent months reading about rat behavior. Uh-huh. <laughs> I know everything about the rats, right? So um, it is difficult because you're not familiar with the terminology. You're not familiar with the techniques. Mm-hmm. And and it's oftentimes very technical and difficult to understand. But the more you read, I think you can train yourself into understanding what are the basic questions being asked in this field? What are the basic techniques? And how do they draw their conclusions? Right. So I think that builds a certain kind of familiarity that I found very helpful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think it's kind of uh, breaking a new path for historians. You know, often we're so limited to the written sources that when we want to access this world of uh, non-written sources, uh, you know, turning to genetics, turning to bioarchaeology, uh, to archaeology in general is one of the few ways to do that. And, you know, so often uh, studies, uh, it's like the integration of genetics and history or the integration of archaeology and history is often done in you know, the medieval period or kind of before written sources or places where there aren't written sources. But, you know, here you're really using it uh, ideally to kind of uh, bring it, bring more insight into the Ottoman period, I think. Mm-hmm. And also, I think you can start by reading the published material from the other fields, mm-hmm. and it, it will tell you a story mm-hmm. that might be helpful for your understanding of the historical narrative and enriching it. But at the same time, you want to be involved in the making of that knowledge. And because as historians, I think we have a lot to bring to the table. Right. And this is something that is why we need more collaboration. So can you give us an example? I mean, what are you bringing to the table that these geneticists or bioarchaeologists don't have? For example, we have the linguistic skills of reading the historical texts. Mm -hmm. And also, when they read works of history then they might not understand the context well enough. So we have, I think we can mm-hmm. offer our expertise to that kind of collaborative work. It's not always like taking from them, right. but it's more like give and take, more collaboration. So I think we have a lot that we can offer. So it seems like working with the genetic, uh, the genetic component of plague of you know, having identified this bacteria in different uh, locations and in different, uh, let's say, I guess, corpses, it really forces you to kind of look beyond the you know the traditional let's say temporal scope of Ottoman historians, which is often really narrowly focused on kind of one uh, small period of history that we look deeply into the culture and the meaning. It seems like you've really kind of expanded it, uh, you know, over centuries and over a much broader swath of territory, you know, all over the Mediterranean, North Africa, and, and so forth. I I found it helpful to work with a larger time mm-hmm. frame and larger spatial um, perspective. Mm-hmm. I think it allowed me to put together a story that would not be possible to do if I were looking only for a decade or two decades. So in that sense, I think I would recommend to um, the younger generation of Ottoman historians to keep that broad perspective in mind mm-hmm. while dealing with these large issues and questions. Well, I think on that note, I 
we'll unfortunately have to end the podcast. We've had, I think, a very vibrant discussion. We've talked a lot about uh, collaborating with geneticists and bioarchaeologists. We've talked about the nature of plague, about how it emerged uh, in this new capital and empire of the Ottoman Empire over in the 16th century. Uh, unfortunately, we have you know far more questions than we can uh, we have time to talk about. But I hope that you read uh, Nuket's. A uh, new book, which was released recently on Cambridge University Press, it's called *Plague and Empire in the Early Modern Mediterranean World: The Ottoman Experience, 1347 to 1600*. And this podcast is part of our ongoing series on the history of science and medicine in the Ottoman Empire. Uh, for those of you that are interested in learning more, you should definitely check out our website uh, and the series page. And if you're interested in plague itself and its Ottoman experience, uh, you can go to our website. Nuket has uh, generously provided a few resources and uh, references that you can follow up on. I encourage you also to check out our Facebook page uh, to find other like-minded listeners. So for now, goodbye. Nuket, thank you so much for being on the podcast. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you.